0: Seeing and hearing Jesus' zeal in prayer and his intimacy of his communion with his Father in prayer, can you imagine hearing the perfect content of his prayers that were always focused on preeminently on the Father's glory and the coming of his kingdom? The disciples, no doubt, were in complete awe of Jesus' prayer life, and yet they had many questions. They wanted to be able to pray like this for themselves. They wanted to understand how to approach God in prayer, but they wondered what kinds of things were they to pray for? What is to be the focus of prayer? could they be assured that God would answer their prayers? Do you sometimes have those same types of questions? Turn with me to our text this morning, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Luke records for us in verse 1 of chapter 11, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he finished, one of his, his, his disciple, one of his disciples said to him, "Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples." Now there are many other important passages on prayer in Scripture. But this passage in Luke 11 is unique, because here we get the opportunity to sort of look in on a very spe- on the very specific way in which Jesus responded to this request that's probably often been even on our own tongues, "Lord, teach us to pray." Jesus' full response to this request is very compelling, and it, and it runs all the way down through verse 13. This morning, though, we're going to focus our attention on verses 2 through 4. Follow along with me as I read those verses. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. This prayer, of course, is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But even as many have commented, the better title would be the Disciples' Prayer. This prayer, just three verses long, covers topics that are so vast that several commentators have noted that its depth cannot be exhausted by exposition. That's certainly true. So, right up front, full disclosure, we're we're, we're not going to be able to cover nearly all there is to say about this prayer. In fact, in the first service, I found myself talking very fast to try to get through what I have to say. But my goal today is just to highlight the great principles of prayer that Jesus lays forth for us here. If you want to know how to pray rightly, then you need to know this prayer. Not not just be able to recite this prayer, but you need to understand the pattern and the principles of prayer that Jesus is teaching here. I assure you on the authority of Scripture, if you apply the principles and the the priorities of, of prayer that Jesus lays forth here, it will revolutionize your prayer life. Now, Jesus had taught His disciples this prayer earlier on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. And the prayer there in Matthew 6 is... The version of this prayer, I imagine that most of you learn to recite. So when we read the prayer here in Luke 11, we notice there are some slight differences. For example, the prayer in Matthew includes the petition, Your kingdom come, and then it adds, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer here in Luke doesn't include the words, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But nevertheless, commentators have agreed the same thought is certainly still there in the petition that is included in your in Luke, your kingdom come. Another example, the prayer in Matthew 6 says, and do, do not lead us into temptation, and then adds the complimentary thought, but deliver us from evil. The prayer in Luke only contains the first phrase, But again, that largely encompasses the request to be delivered from evil. So the essential nature of the prayer is still the same. So we understand this. There were two different occasions on which Jesus taught the disciples to pray. And it's not concerning at all that the prayers are not identical word for word because the prayers are in essence and in the principles they teach the same in fact the reality that these prayers are worded slightly differently points to an important truth and that truth is that jesus is not telling us to preach in these or to teach to pray in these exact words He's telling us to pray in this way. And that's critical for you to understand. In this prayer, our Lord has given us a pattern for prayer. Our, in this prayer, our Lord is, is laying forth key principles which are to guide the way we pray. He's not saying pray in these, in these exact words. It's fine to do that. It's fine to recite this prayer if your heart and mind are focused on the words. But in reality, it's it's not a prayer in, in and of itself as much as it is an outline to guide our prayers. John MacArthur put it this way, the Lord's Prayer is not so much a prayer in itself as it is a skeleton which believers are to flesh out with their own words of praise, adoration, petitions, and so on. It's not a substitute for our own prayers, but a guide for them. Martin Lloyd-Jones very helpfully, I think, wrote this. He said, "This prayer is undoubtedly a pattern prayer." We might say that we have in the Lord's pra- what we have in the Lord's prayer is a kind of skeleton. Take, for instance, this act of preaching. I have certain notes before me. I have not a complete sermon. I merely have headings, the principles which are to be expounded. But I do not stop at a mere enunciation of the principles. I expound and work them out. That is the way, he says, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we are to to regard the Lord's, Lord's Prayer. He goes on to say the principles are here, and we cannot add to them. The principles provided in the Lord's Prayer cover everything, and our and all we are to do is to take those principles and employ them, and base our every petition upon them. So that's critical to understand. The Lord's Prayer is a pattern for our prayers. Jesus is laying forth principles which are to guide our prayers. So here's what we'll see this morning. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us five essential principles to guide our own prayers. Five essential principles to guide our own prayers. Now I'll give you the first principle in just a moment. But I want you to notice how Jesus tells us to begin our prayers at verse 2 again. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Stop right there. Jesus tells us we're to pray and we're we're to start our prayer by addressing God as Father. So right out of the gate here, Jesus makes it clear that to pray this prayer, you must be a Christian to call God Father presupposes that the one who is praying is a true follower of Christ. Only Christians, saved by grace through faith in Christ, have the relationship to God whereby as adopted children, they can call Him Father. But for Christians, our Lord very graciously tells us the very first thing to pray rightly is this. You must realize that the God to whom you pray is your Father. And understand this. You're not just to say the word Father mindlessly. You're to think about what you're saying. When you pray to your Father, you should reflect on the reality that you are his redeemed adopted forgiven child who's been justified by faith in Christ God has declared you righteous there's no there's now no condemnation for you in Christ you've now You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you now cry out, Abba, Father. How are we to pray? We're to start, we are to start with this realization that this is not some distant, unconcerned deity to which we pray. What Jesus is saying here is so wonderful and so important for you to embrace. You are to approach God in prayer with the assurance that you're fully reconciled to God in Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. And therefore, you've entered into a relationship by which, in, in which God is your Father. And your Father, as your Father, He cares. And He's fully committed to your provision and your protection. It's it's very true that after we say this first word of our prayer, Father, we need to to pause and to consider all that that means. When we do that, when you do that, when you say Father and stop and just consider that God is your Father, you'll begin to worship Him in your thoughts of His grace and loving kindness even before you continue on in your prayer. And then as you do continue on in prayer, you'll go boldly before Him in confidence and trust knowing that you're going to your good and your great Father. Now before I go on, I just want you to quickly notice that the prayer now breaks into two main sections. The first section focuses on God. The second section focuses on the things we need. That order is very important. That order shows us what the priorities of our own prayers are to be. The God-given order of prayer is to have regard for for God first. First. Regardless of what our circumstances are at any given time when we pray, the priorities of our prayer are to be God-centered and not man-centered. So here we go. We finally get to the first principle. The first principle to guide our prayers is this. The glory of God is to be the first priority of your prayers. The glory of God is to be the first priority of your prayers. Verse 2 again, and He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name. Here the word hallow means to consider something or someone as set apart and holy. So when we say, hallowed be your, Your name, name refers to all that's true of God all of God's attributes. We're to pray that His name be hallowed. In other words, we're to pray that God, in all that He is, would be revered. That He would receive surpassing honor, glory, and praise in our own life, in our church, in our community, and in throughout the world. We're saying, Father... You're so majestic, so glorious. I just pray that everyone would see that, would understand that, and bow to You and worship You because that's what You deserve. And you come looking at the sin and the indifference of the unbelieving world toward God and you say, Father, this is just not right. Wake up the world, Father. Cause the world to give You the praise that You deserve. Or even as a Christian, perhaps you look at your own spiritual dullness at times and you pray, Father, I need to grow in the knowledge of you. I need to worship you more deeply. Help me. Teach me. Grow me so that, my name, so that your name is hallowed in, in all aspects of my life. You know, you know you know this. we can't read the gospels, the gospel accounts, the four gospel accounts, without seeing that Jesus' consuming passion was the glory of the Father. We've seen that just recently, as our pastor has preached through John seventeen. We've really seen it all the way through the Gospel of John. Jesus knew the glory which belonged to his Father, and his one desire was that mankind might come to know it as well. And as His followers, as followers of Christ, that should be our chief desire also. The glory of God. So Jesus calls you right out of the gate here, priority number one, in every every prayer that you pray, to pray with God's glory as your primary motive. The first order of our prayers, the supreme priority in our prayers, the glory of God. A.W. Pink wrote this regarding this first petition. This petition must take the precedence because the glory of God's great name is the ultimate end of all things. Every other request must not only be subordinated to this one, but must be in harmony with and in pursuance of it. We cannot pray rightly unless the honor of God is dominant in our hearts. That's exactly right, isn't it? And when we pray this way, it elevates our prayer life to another level. We move from man-centered prayers to God-centered prayers. So the glory of God is is to be primary in your heart, and it's also to be priority one in your prayers. And a desire for God's glory is to undergird every petition we make. Here's the second principle to guide our prayers. We are to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. Jesus tells us we are to pray, Your kingdom come. Now, we understand God is is already king of the entire universe. He made the universe. He rules over it. There's nothing outside of his ultimate control. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. But here in Luke 11, verse 2, Jesus commands us to pray, Your kingdom come. This prayer is then about the earthly kingdom. The other kingdom present in this world, the kingdom of Satan, the the kingdom of darkness, there's another God of this world and and his kingdom stands in opposition to the one true God, but Scripture teaches that Satan's opposition is not permanent. The day will come when he's once and for all crushed under the feet of Christ Jesus is coming back and He's going to reign. He's going to turn this world into His his own glorious kingdom. And Jesus tells us we should pray for that. Father, Your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus, and, and put an end to this evil world system. Put an end to this kingdom of sin and darkness. think about what you're praying when you pray this prayer. You're praying in effect, God, I'm not comfortable in this dark and sinful world. This is not my home and I long for the day when righteousness reigns. By the way, I don't have time to go into this in any great detail, but this this prayer does also include our prayers for the salvation of others, praying that the kingdom come in that way as as God rescues people from the domain of darkness and transfers them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. But again, think about this. Do you see how this petition also elevates your prayers to where they should be? Praying for God's kingdom takes our focus off temporal, worldly matters and turns our focus to matters of eternal consequence. We're pilgrims on this earth. We're citizens of heaven. It only makes sense that we should pray this way. Let's take a moment and just reflect on these first two principles. The glory of God is to be the first priority of your prayers, and you are to pray for God's kingdom to come. Most of us here today, frankly, live relatively comfortable lives, and we're easily distracted by the busyness of life and the consequences that we find ourselves, or the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, at any given time. And unless and until we're captivated by the glory of God and His interest, we may not always be prone to pray this way. Our prayers then can tend to fall very short of what Jesus is teaching here in the Lord's Prayer. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the Word of God is active... Is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This passage in Luke 11 is like that, isn't it? It cuts us. It's convicting. It is for me. Jesus, Jesus is teaching here to pray this way demands each of us to ask ourselves the question, can I pray this prayer? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, with integrity, without hypocrisy. Is God's glory really my first priority? Am I preferring the kingdom of God to my own life? My own pursuits? You have to examine your heart is what you really want is Christ to be here reigning over all the earth. Do you really long for that? But along those same lines, do you also see that what Jesus is teaching us here clarifies what the desires of our heart and what our priorities must be for the for the true Christian? His or her heart responds to this kind of truth. Yes, this is what I want. This is exactly what my heart really desires. I want His name to be glorified and I want His earthly rule to come now. If that's you, if you're a Christian and the principles of prayer that the Lord is laying forth for us here are convicting you that your prayers are not what they should be. Maybe they tend to be a little man-centered or a little me-centered. Then receive the conviction these words are bringing on your heart. Let this prayer, let the Lord's Prayer, let what Jesus is teaching here convict you and sanctify you. That's good. That's what it's supposed to do. And commit yourself to pursuing in obedience these principles principles that Jesus is teaching us here. Let me also say this. If you come in obedience to Jesus' call to pray, to prayer here in this way, if you give priority to His glory, for His kingdom to come, you'll not only find, find that your prayer life is transformed, you'll find that God is transforming your own personal priorities. Listen to the missionary E. Stanley Jones. He, he wrote this. He said, Prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pole do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? And then he says this, prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. Do you see this? As you begin to follow this pattern for prayer, these these principles for prayer He untangles the desires of your heart and aligns them with His priorities. You've probably heard it said that prayer is to impress you with God much more than it is to impress God with you and your needs. He already knows your needs. A prayer life that follows the pattern that Jesus sets forth and teaches us here actually becomes a sanctification tool in the hands of the Father who already knows exactly what you need. Now we come to verse 3 and come to the petitions for our needs. But even here, keep in mind, even in these petitions, our prayer is not to be self-focused. Our prayers are not to be self-focused or man-centered. Even as we're praying for our own needs. Here's the third principle to guide our prayers. We are to pray for God's daily provision of our physical needs. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. The word bread there is, is a shorthand term that refers to all the necessities of life. In other words, Jesus used the, the simple word bread to symbolize food, water, the sleep that we need, the lodging that we need. It refers to all the necessities of life. Notice he uses the word bread. He doesn't tell us to pray for luxuries. We are to pray for the simple necessities that will allow us to live and serve the Lord. But we're not to pray for worldly, materialistic things that would distract us from His glory and His kingdom. That would be counter to what He just told us to pray. Something else here, the the Greek word translated daily, actually highlights the fact that this is a request that God would meet our, our needs of the immediate future. In other words, get this, This prayer is intended to to express and even to impress upon our own hearts our day-to-day dependence on God. Just think about it for a minute. (coughs) Excuse me. In Jesus' day, most of the people were living day-to-day. You know, working today for tomorrow's food. So this petition would have been very natural and very obvious to them. But for most of us, we have enough provision for the next week or for the next month or for the next year. And because of that, if we aren't careful, we can find it hard to identify with this petition for our daily bread. What I'm just saying is, I understand that even though we know our theology tells us we're dependent on God, too often we tend to think and live as if we're not. As if we can handle our day-to-day needs without God's help. It's very easy to fall into this trap. We think, I worked hard and I earned the money for that food, that car, this house. I earned it all. I did it. It it, it wasn't a problem. And I can do it again. I can keep doing it. Well, it may be true that you worked hard for all that you have. But who gave you the ability to do that? Who gave you your job? Who gives you the health to get out of bed every day? James 1, 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. I think you know this. I hope you know this, but that attitude of I can do it by myself is a dangerous lie that is an absolute cancer to your spiritual life. But watch what Jesus does here with this petition. Jesus teaches us that it's right and it's appropriate for us to bring our needs to Him as a way of expressing a dependent, trusting relationship with your Father. We need this prayer today as much or more than Jesus' original audience did. This reminds us, this this prayer, this petition, this third principle reminds us that yes, we're completely dependent on our good and great God. We pray this prayer day after day and as we pray it, we remind ourselves with this petition every day that we're completely dependent upon Him. And as then we then watch day by day His daily provision for us. As we do that, it it cultivates the trust and dependence that is the foundation of our walk with God. And our faith in and love for God God the Father grows as we see and mark His daily provision to us. So when, we, when you pray for your daily bread, it's not re, you reminding God of all that you need. It's God reminding you of your need for His provision. And then showing you always His faithfulness and then growing your faith in Him so that when bigger things come along, when trials come along, your faith is prepared and it is where it should be. And also notice that this petition, it's not a, even though it's for ourselves, it's not a departure from a focus on the glory of God. It's actually a way that God's glory can be put in, to display in display in your own life. The fourth principle is this: we are to pray for forgiveness. Jesus tells us to pray, verse four. And forgive us our sins, for we, also, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. There are some theological issues that may pop into your mind as we look at this verse. Let me talk through some of those. First, Scripture tells us that for the person who has repented and put his faith in Christ alone for salvation, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to that person's account. That person's sins then are forgiven and his salvation is permanently sealed, established, never to be lost. Believers have God's once and all judicial forgiveness. God has declared us forever pardoned, forever forgiven in that sense. In that positional sense of justification, we are forever forgiven. And as we've seen, Jesus is teaching those who are already true believers, His true followers, He's teaching them how to pray. So when He said to pray, forgive us our sins, he's, he, he was not implying that unless you pray this prayer, your salvation will be taken away. That's not what this prayer is at all. This prayer is not a prayer for that forever positional forgiveness that comes when we're justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. This prayer is a prayer regarding the daily walk of your Christian life. As we go through day-to-day life, we sin. In the positional sense of justification, those sins are already wiped away and forgiven. But, however... From a daily walk in communion with God, we come to Him and confess those sins. So as a believer, we have His eternal positional forgiveness, but now as His child, when we sin, we ask for His parental forgiveness, not as our judge, but as our Father with whom we want to maintain communion and fellowship. And so we confess our sins and we ask His forgiveness so that we don't harbor unconfessed sin that would interrupt our fellowship with Him. And 1 John 1.9 assures us if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I want to back up and say something else about this. We understand that anything that would make us comfortable with sin must be eradicated from our lives. And not carefully examining your life, denying your sin, or refusing to confess it and repent of it, that begins what can become a cycle of thinking lightly about sin, of overlooking what's hideous in God's sight. You can even become blind to your own sin. So Jesus has, Jesus has very graciously commanded us in this prayer to avoid that by praying for forgiveness. We're to do this on a consistent basis so we don't stifle our conscience and somehow become blind to or comfortable with our sin. It's, he's just giving us here a sanctifying gift Of confession. And he tells us here that it's to be a standard part of our prayer life. Now look at the second half of verse 4. And forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Some have been troubled by this verse because they believe it is advocating a works based righteousness. They say this verse is saying, if we forgive others, then we earn do we earn God's forgiveness. That's not what Jesus is teaching. What he's teaching here is not even remotely related to works based salvation. If this verse is saying that we can earn our salvation by our forgiveness, then we've got problems. And we have to cancel the whole doctrine of grace in the New Testament. This verse is not saying that we can somehow merit our own salvation and God's forgiveness by our forgiveness of others. Instead, this is saying it's perfectly in line with all of Scripture and speaks to the fact that if you have known God's forgiveness, if you are saved you have a regenerate heart. And forgiveness of others is evidence of a regenerate heart. In other words, if you're a true believer, then forgiveness of others will will characterize your life. And so Jesus can say, pray, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive. Forgive. Martin Lloyd-Jones again described this when he wrote that the essence of verse 4 is like this. Forgive me as I forgive them because of what the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ has done in my heart. Now, we need to be careful here because this is not to say that for a Christian this is always perfect and that we never struggle. We do need to desire to forgive perfectly and forgiveness is to be the bent of our heart now as true believers. But there's another lesson for all of us to learn in this verse. Even for believers, the Lord recognizes that we fail to be as consistent in our forgiveness as we should be because of the strength of our own flesh. And this matter of our forgiveness of others is so important that Jesus includes it in the Lord's Prayer as as a reminder to us to check ourselves to make sure we're not harboring unforgiveness. It's a daily thing we're to do. In fact, in the parallel passage in Matthew 6, Jesus reinforced it. In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, He kind of comes back and repeats Himself and He says, for if you forgive others of their transgression, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, then your Heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. So we do need to understand this You can't know the the parental forgiveness of your father that keeps your fellowship with him so abundantly rich unless you forgive others in your heart. When you refuse to forgive others, God won't forgive you either. And and, and remember, I'm talking about in a permanent justifying... or I'm not talking about it in in a permanent justifying sense, but in terms of the fact that that you've not really cleared accounts with God when, you, when you're asking for forgiveness but are harboring resentment against someone else. And so when you refuse to forgive others, God says He won't forgive you in this parental sense and you're thereby, you, you thereby forfeit the inner peace and the depth of spiritual life that only close communion with the Lord can produce and as a result you fall into a time of spiritual shallowness and indifference and that's tragic this is a high call on your life to keep close eye on your relationships and to make sure you have a forgiving heart before you go to the father to seek his forgiveness first make sure that you have forgiven From your heart, the one who has wronged you. And of course, we can all rest assured whatever it is that we have to forgive of someone else is completely insignificant to what God has forgiven us. The fifth principle that Jesus gives us to guide our prayers is this we're to pray for spiritual protection. The end of verse 4. And lead us not into temptation. Jesus is telling you that in your prayers, you are to be proactive in the sense now of requesting God's present and future protection from sin. This petition has also given some angst to some people because they notice that in James chapter 1, James writes that God himself does not tempt anyone. And they say, well, if God doesn't tempt anyone, then why does Jesus tell us in his prayer to pray, do not lead us into temptation? Well, notice, first of all, that the prayer is not, Father, do not tempt us. That's not what Christ says to pray at all. Because God is never going to tempt you directly and entice you into sin. But this prayer is so this prayer is not inconsistent with what James says. Instead, it's this prayer simply recognizes that God is sovereign and he has providential control of our lives. God does lead us. And so not only is God able to protect us in times of temptation. He's also able to lead us away from a particular temptation entirely. Jesus isn't suggesting that we should pray this prayer because we don't trust God and we're afraid that He'll lead us astray. Jesus tells us to pray this prayer because we shouldn't be trusting ourselves. This is a prayer of a wise Christian who is not presumptuous and who doesn't have a false sense of self-secure of self-sufficiency? It's a it's a prayer of a believer who desires to grow in righteousness, but who honestly looks at the power of sin and at his own weakness and sinful propensities, and says, "Lord, I realize that if I'm exposed to temptation, then I might fall. So lead me not into temptation." It's just a prayer that heeds the warning let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a wise prayer. It's another prayer, too, that highlights our complete dependence on God. You just pray, Father, I, I want to live a righteous life. And I but I know how weak I am. And I know how strong my flesh can be. So I just pray that You would lead me away from any trial or temptation that would interrupt my my fellowship with You. But Father, I understand if sometimes You choose to bring trials into my life and if You do that, that's good too. Just give me the grace to consider it all joy because I do trust You. Well, that's a major flyover of the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Um, I I just hope you see that this pattern and these principles that, that, that Christ has laid out for us here, they take our prayer lives to a much higher level. And praying this way has a sanctifying effect on our lives. I'll just quickly say this. I'd encourage you for, on your own time to study the rest of this passage. In, in verses 5 to 13, Jesus goes on to teach, really, I would say, two additional truths in response to the, the disciples' request to teach us to pray. First, he, te- he, he teaches a parable, and in the, in the, in the object lesson of the parable is, is really we're to be persistent in prayer. So, the point is, you are to pray the principles of the Lord's Prayer, and you're to be persistent in praying those. You don't give up, you ask, seek, knock. It's repetition, it's perseverance in prayer, persistence. You don't pray for your friend's salvation a week in a row, and because he doesn't get saved, you stop, you keep on keep on for years. Second, and this is very sweet, at the end of this passage, Jesus comes back to this word Father. And He takes time to say more about that and and, and He assures us in, in, a, in a very sweet way again of the goodness of our Heavenly Father. And it's really a call at the end of this passage on how to pray it's a call to and when we pray to always trust to know that we can trust our father to give us good things that we need for our christian walk so he gives us a pattern for prayer he calls us to perseverance in prayer and he calls us assures us that we can trust our father it's so gracious, Jesus kind of books in bookends this entire passage on prayer by focusing our attention on the fact that God is our good and gracious Father. Let's pray. Father, we praise You. We thank You for sending Your Son. And we thank You that the disciples asked this question the question that we often have. Father, we do pray that you would teach us to pray. Help us to be faithful to these principles of prayer, this pattern of prayer that you've so clearly laid out for us. Use it in our lives to draw us closer to you, to sanctify us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.